Hello. This is episode 59 of the podcast called Blood and Rain. I'm your host, Arthur Dane. This story is one that I cannot go without writing, particularly for selfish reasons, first and foremost. The oral tradition of storytelling is one that will never disappear in this world, despite technology and its advocates screaming that it will. However, oral traditions of storytelling are only effective when preserved by multiple people and not held hostage by one man. This is a story I've told in small bits and pieces to others for roughly nine months now. This is a story I need to make sure I remember wholeheartedly in its entirety. I need to ensure I remember these events that are near and dear to my heart. These events are ones that seem to be disconnected as they occur, but looking back now, are clearly the continuous work of our God. These events came flooding to my mind at full force and all at once just 24 hours after my baptism, and it became clear that this was the story that led to it. After this surreal head rush, I scribbled down 500 words of one of its chapters titled The Mission District for my good friends Jeremiah Myers and Chase McBride, an anonymous content creator's greater myth and the Solar Saxon. I told them I had at least 500 pages of this, to which they responded, You must write them then. Beyond these selfish reasons of my writing, there are reasons of service. It struck me that this story is actually compelling enough to violently shatter one's stagnant worldview and powerful enough to rouse one into action. It struck me that this story could actually be of service. In order for it to be of service, however, you, the reader, must first know what this story is. This story is four things all at once. This story is one of being deceived off the path of faith leading to God bringing me home. It's a prodigal son story in the post-post-modern era. This story is a love letter to two cities, San Francisco and Oakland, California. These are two of the most unique places on the planet Earth, and they are just one gorgeous bridge apart. These cities are my home, and these cities made me who I am. This is a story of poverty, malnourishment, injury, and sleep deprivation. Feelings I hope none of you ever feel. This is a thank you to the men who kept me company and prevented my heart from going hard and cold during the course of these events. Ken Smith, Benjamin Horgan, Jaquan Williams, Patrice Rowland, Terrence Harris, Ace Harrington, Alex Condy, John Smith, Ty Lee, and Wolf Young. We're living in an age where men are soft, but not sentimental. What a sad state of affairs. It is this lack of vitality and the lack of poetry that has us in this droning, monotonous, and nonsensical way of life. This state, however, can be remedied. I know this to be true, since it has been remedied in mine, as you will read ahead. So let us begin. Prelude. New Decades Eve. What is this feeling, I thought. I knew the flashing lights to come, the shouting down from the count of ten till the stroke of midnight. I knew the raw mathematical sum of energy itself. This is the part that had not changed. There was intensity on that night again. The same intensity I knew on the equivalent night two years prior. I was going to be surrounded by a crowd of degenerate, single-minded people again in the name of profit, but this was a different kind of darkness I was tasting. This is not another wave of peevish paper cuts brought to me by poltergeists of sorry strength. This is a harder attempt at a kill shot. 
I could feel something looming overhead. I could feel a much larger grimace from a demon set to devour a crowd of the potentially innocent. Ignorance was in abundance amongst the crowd, but there was still time for them to learn. There was still time for them to understand. But then, I feared it was too late. I should be feeling unreasonable fits of joy, I thought. I'm training at one of the best Muay Thai gyms in the world. I've rehabbed my lower back injury. I've survived the hell my life has known, the doldrums that plagued my soul. I'm bartending a New Year's Eve at the best and biggest bar in Oakland, and Oakland is the place to be. Oakland was everything San Francisco was before tech took its soul. There's a reason why Uber didn't get to move into downtown Oaktown as planned. The locals kept setting the building on fire. You're not taking Oakland too. There was a zeitgeist forming in the town that every sane man in the San Francisco Bay Area wanted to be a part of. People would come up from San Jose, come down from Napa Valley, and across the water from the city everyone was trying to escape. It wasn't always this way. Oakland once led the nation in murder. Oakland was a place you avoided like the plague. For nearly two decades, the only reasons to go to were sports-related or jazz-related. You'd go see Ricky Henderson steal bases in the Oakland Coliseum. Rich Gannon threatened greatness in Oakland Raider black and silver. The beginning of a basketball legacy at the Roracle Arena led by Stephen Curry. Or the famed jazz acts your basic friends have never heard of in a glitzy club by the water called Yoshi's. If you weren't there for any of those reasons, what the hell were you doing there? Were you trying to get your tires stolen when you weren't looking? Crackheads seemed to spawn out of thin air, and a gas station was always being shot up at any given time. Walking around Lake Merritt at night was like walking around Central Park any year between 1970 and 1994. An invitation to be swiftly mugged. So what the hell happened? Why is Oakland suddenly the place to be? No one could really tell you, but chances are it had something to do with basketball. You see, we literally do this in every single sport. Flip the entire game on its head. This is the Bay Area. It gets rough. It gets socially brain dead. But when it comes down to it, we're smarter than the rest of the nation. We will always find a way to win. Our frontier settling fabric demands it. Innovation brought us here, and innovation will never die here. Football? Let me introduce you to the 1980 San Francisco 49ers, the team that changed the game with the mad genius nature of Bill Walsh, ice-cold composure of Joe Montana, and the cut-my-finger-off-to-stay-in-the-game attitude of Ronnie Lott. You can't just keep volume passing like that with all that glitzy footwork, smoke and mirrors, and rhythm-based plays to win a championship. We did. Four times. Baseball? Let me introduce you to the 2010's San Francisco Giants. The team that decided a bunch of misfits at every position is so crazy that it just might work. Yeah, our star pitchers were a stoner who weighed 170 pounds soaking wet and made sure his hair was perfectly placed before he struck you out for the 10th time, and a hick from North Carolina who threw like an autistic kid with a slingshot but put on the greatest clutch performance in the history of sports. Tim Linscombe and Madison Bumgarner made sports analysts look like imbeciles. Those misfits won three championships together. But those teams were San Francisco through and through, and San Francisco alone gained the spoils. In the early 1980s, San Francisco was in shambles. The mayor was assassinated in City Hall, which, regardless of his sexual orientation, was not a good look for the city. The local economy was in the tank, and the old money of the railroad families that built the West were reluctant to spend a dime in that era. 
but one clutch pass to Dwight Clark at Candlestick Park not only sunk the Dallas Cowgirls, but raised the city up from its ashes. That phoenix on the city's flag held true for the first time since San Francisco rebuilt from the literal ashes of the 1906 earthquake and fire. Money was flowing while skyscrapers broke ground, and heroes were real while technology boomed a bit further south. But what about Oakland? The Raiders won the chip in 1976 and 1980 before packing up for Los Angeles, and the A's had a shot in the arm with Moneyball in 2002, but no kind of dynasty reigned in Oakland since the early 1970s. West Oakland was once the center of jazz and culture until urban planners decided to build the BART above ground instead of underground like the rest of the Oakland stops. The black community was making Oakland a place to be, and then their wings were clipped time and time again. Death, decay, and destruction ruled the town. This was the case until a scrawny shooter from Davidson University became a Golden State Warrior. It's hard to win a game when your opponent can't make three-point shots from the parking lot across the street from the stadium. You can't win championships on three-point shooting and defense alone. We did. Three times. Suddenly, the champions of the Bay were across the bridge. Suddenly, the money wanted to head east. Suddenly, the town got safer. Suddenly, restaurants and bars were filling up the streets. Suddenly, the hipsters had company. Everyone found out about Oakland. Gentrification was the name of the new game. Gentrification was coming for the soul of Oakland. Gentrification would make it safer. Gentrification would make it more expensive. Gentrification would make it accessible. Gentrification would make it lose its edge. The best time to catch any place is just before gentrification begins, and the best length to stay put is roughly 15 years. Keep it Oakland. You'd see those words on a t-shirt, poster, or sticker on every street corner in the town. They were certainly trying, and they literally committed arson just to make a point. I thought, maybe there's a chance to stop gentrification right before it takes the town's soul. The basketball team wasn't even there anymore. They're bought and paid for and shacked up in the billion dollar arena across the water with Uber right next door. So maybe, just maybe, the gentrification had peaked. We could have lived in this Goldilocks zone of charm and chaos. I woke up every day and felt that kind of way. So why didn't I feel that way that day? I was fresh off of six 60-meter sprints and a pair of 400s with my favorite co-worker turned friend after a quick hop of the fence at Oakland Tech High School. I'm sure it's just a decorative fence, as it's north of 40th Street and deep into the nicer part of town. I'm sure Marshawn Lynch wouldn't care, and he's the only alumnus that matters. After insisting on dropping $100 on a wide-brim hat at Gorin Brothers in East Berkeley, a shower, and a shave, I was ready for a party and ready for war. Driving around the lake from East Oakland to find the last parking spot in downtown, my favorite barback, Darren Caldwell, and I were ready for the money-making shit-show shift to ring in the new decade. No one was in the bar, but the night was still young. Surely people wouldn't start raging at 8 p.m. Our five-foot-one Filipina bar manager, Justine, asked each of us our New Year's resolutions. If you're going to do something, you'll do it whatever day it is, I stated. I hear it, but it's a new decade. I feel like this is one you have to have a vision for, replied Justine. I didn't like being rude to my coworkers, and I remembered the masculine camaraderie from my old job didn't have the same fit there. I realized I may have crossed the line. I decided to adjust. Yeah, that makes sense. I honestly just have one resolution. I want to be a world champion. That's it.
Nothing more, I stated. Well, there it is, then. She smiled. Yeah, you're right. Thanks for that. I'm going to go to both sides. Do you guys want anything? I asked. Naturally, everyone wanted their chosen fuels for the shift ahead. Red Bull, gummy worms, monster, chewing gum, yerba mate, and so on were listed. A power walk down the road brought me to both sides, the Yemeni-owned convenience store with entrances on both sides of the building, one side on Broadway and the other on Telegraph, the lungs of Oakland that needed a sharp point after a long descent from Berkeley. I tossed everything into the black plastic bag with a pair of dang energies for myself and walked back up Telegraph past a shawarma truck that never seemed to stop blasting Egyptian house music. How much do I owe you? asked each of my drink-slinging teammates. Nothing, I declared. Arthur, I want you in the mezzanine tonight, said Justine. Sweet, I'll take the crow's nest, I replied. I love working in the mezzanine. No one to help, just me drowning in orders. Five rows deep. Footwork, footwork, footwork. No one seemed to understand why I was faster than everyone else. They just knew that I was. The eyes could just see it, and the sales numbers told the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. You look like you're fighting the air when you bartend. That's because I am fighting. But the crowd wasn't in the bar yet, and I was in the crow's nest alone. Everyone downstairs in the main bar was socializing with the few customers we had. Yet I was prepping every last detail for service while the black haze was becoming ever-present. More ever-present than before. Something somewhere was coming to kill Oakland, and I could feel it. Something was coming to rain on the parade. Something somewhere was harboring a wave of dystopia to drag Oakland straight back to hell with a downpour of malaise to follow. Black tar felt set to drown the town. Hi, King, said Jane. What's up, Jane? I replied. Jane was a friend who I had noticed had a thing for me as soon as I started working for the bar. Jane is a tall black girl with glasses, dreadlocks, a quiet attitude, and a hipster fashion sense. When we met, I was still under the impression that men and women could be friends because I spent so much time as a voluntary celibate before Celine, my fiance, and I got back together. I successfully friend-zoned Jane, but I was beginning to see that placement required consistent maintenance. You look hot. I like the hat, she flirted. <laughs> well, thanks. Tell Darren to come up here, too. There's literally nothing happening, I replied. Me, Darren, and Jane hit it off six weeks earlier during our first shift together. Jane was from North Oakland, while Darren was raised in West Portal, a rich neighborhood in West San Francisco, and Darren was a part of this new wave of guys who felt the need to apologize for being white. The three of us bonded over our superior music taste, and we found ourselves spending a lot of time together. Darren and I started working out together at the downtown Oakland YMCA, and the three of us would have brunch once a week. The highlight for our new and unlikely friend group, however, was a music night every Monday, when the three of us would get together after my closing shift and listen to a record none of us had ever heard before. These two new friends of mine were nothing like any friends I had before, but they were good people and good company nonetheless. Darren came upstairs, and the three of us put back a shot of El Silencio Mezcal. The bottle we had in the rack that we were glad wasn't the typical Vida Mezcal that made its way into the well of every other craft cocktail bar in the Bay Area. Vida was all smoke and no body, while El Silencio was mineral, floral, and well-balanced. That's my last shot for the night, claimed Darren. No, it's not, I retorted. I'm bored, stated Jane. Yeah, what the fuck is up with this shit? I'm caffeinated to the gills and there's no one here. It's literally almost ten, I lamented. A half hour later, the crowd began to flood in, and among them were my good friends from my old evangelical church group. It was a strange clash of two worlds. 
Jeremy, my best friend, Joey, the clutch man, who's always down for anything, Melanie, my sister from another mister, and Melanie's stand-up guy of a boyfriend, Ryan, all came upstairs to visit me in the sea of partygoers dressed in 1920s style garb. When it came to 11.30, the bar was being hit with the full force of a typical weekend crowd. Four wells downstairs were being sufficiently peppered with pestering people, and I had five rows of people waiting for their New Year's poisons. This was the kind of stress I lived for. Two bees knees and one shaker, two coupe glasses behind the shaker. One clover club, one coupe behind that shaker. Four margaritas with two and two, and four salted rocks glasses behind them. Two old fashions, one with bourbon, one with rye, two mixing glasses, two rocks glasses. Two Manhattans, one up and one on the rocks, so one coupe and one rocks glass behind that mixing glass. Three vodka sodas, four Jack and Cokes, and five tequila sodas made 12 Collins glasses in front of my mixing apparatus, and in the back of my head was two red wines, two lagers, a stout, a Coors Light, and three champagnes. Do I shake the egg whites in the Clover Club while I stir the Manhattans and ask for the next order? Ten seconds. Done. Fill the shaker with ice, seal it, and shake for another ten seconds while stirring the Manhattans for another ten to finish the clock. Crack. Place the strainers. Pour the liquids. Make the final cut of the pour look sexy. Throw the mixing glass and shaker into the sink. Hard step to the left. Left hook to the body. Wash them. Place them back on the mat. Weave to the left. Pour the beers from the tap. Place them on the bar. Back step drop to my left to the low refrigerator. Grab the champagne in the Coors Light. Hop back up. Soft rear low kick to close the fridge. Reverse L step to face the customers again. Twist off the Coors Light. Place it on the bar. Lay the glasses for the wine down. Extend the arm. Land the pour. Make those final drops look sexy. Spin 180 degrees to my right to put the red wine back. Spin 180 degrees to face the customers again. Tilt one champagne flute. Tilt two champagne flute. Tilt three champagne flute. And then the white girls were happy. Fill three shakers with ice. Double shake the margaritas together. Crack, pour, make those final pours look sexy. Ten seconds. Shake the two bees knees cocktails together while stirring the wild fashion. Ten seconds. Stop shaking. Ten more seconds. Keep stirring. Crack, pour, both at the same time. It's the sexy fucking cups, damn it! I could still hear the voice of the man who trained me three years ago. Stir the last cocktail, the bourbon old fashioned, for 20 seconds while starting on the highballs. One sexy cut, 11 bounce cuts to fill the gaps between 12 highball pours. One Clover Club, two Bees Knees, one Manhattan Up, one Manhattan on the Rocks, one Bourbon Old Fashioned, one Rye Old Fashioned, four Margaritas, three Champagnes, two Reds, two Lagers, one Stout, one Coors Light, three Vodka Sodas, four Jack and Cokes, and five Tequila Sodas. Open or close? I asked. You can start a tab. I need a card. Here you go. I rung up, swiped, handed the card back, and went on to the next. It only took four minutes. If I could have the hand speed and foot speed of a fighter at my day, in parentheses, night job, the movement patterns for the ring would be ingrained. This busy bar was the perfect arena outside the arena. Melanie is getting hit on by some lesbian chick, yelled Ryan over the crowd in front of me. That's fucking hilarious, I yelled back, while shaking the next cocktail. Holy shit, it's crazy up here, do you need any help? Asked Justine, who emerged out of nowhere. No, I'm all good, I feel great, I responded. If you took a look at the customers who surrounded my mezzanine bar, you'd see a bunch of people who were too stunned or dazzled by my physical display of speed and efficiency to be upset. Everyone's order was accounted for. Everyone had been spoken to. Everyone felt at ease that their drinks were coming as fast as humanly possible. The flash isn't for flash's sake. The flash is there to hypnotize customers in order to buy time. The only time a customer ever complained to me was on Cinco de Mayo in 2018, when I spent 10 hours making rounds of 14 drinks in one go, and one customer stated that he had been waiting a little while, which was 3 minutes, for his drinks. I decided to completely stop working, look to him, and say, If you have any suggestions about how I can make these drinks any faster, I'm all ears. But since you don't, I'm going to go back to doing my job now. 
the rest of the customers around him laughed, and he felt understandably embarrassed. At least let me help you for a little while, requested Justine. In all honesty, if anyone was going to share the mezzanine bar with me, I was glad I was going to be Justine. Justine was kind, reasonable, and the fastest bartender I had worked with in two years. Yeah, you got it, I answered. And so she did. The countdown to midnight came, and Justine grabbed a bottle of champagne that was nearly half her size, and decided to down a third of it in celebration. She then tried to hand me the bottle to follow suit. <laughs> no thanks. I have my own version of that, I replied. I then grabbed a purple haze flavored bang energy drink and a Guinness to double fist them into oblivion. I just can't stand cheap champagne. Holy shit, bro, happy new year, exclaimed Justine. Happy new year, I responded. Two hours later, the crowd was thrown out of the house, and the after hours shots were being poured. I took my third drink of the night, a shot of 100 proof rye called Rittenhouse, and went straight to closing duties, finalizing checks, and cleaning like a madman. I had pictures with all of my friends, both Christian and not, and I had no more time for festivities. Arthur, do you want another shot? Asked Justine. No thanks, I have to train in the morning, I responded. Justine, Jane, and the rest of the bartenders were all noticeably drunk. Jane got to clock out and head home, while Darren and I were left with the majority of the cleaning duties, due to the hilarious fact that Natasha, a white girl with dreadlocks from Chicago, was trying to prove to our Puerto Rican and black bouncers that she could freestyle rap. Justine went home in an Uber after stumbling and mumbling incomprehensible sentences about wanting to play more Mary J. Blige at the bar. No one was pissed off at her for leaving early, though, as she was the best manager any of us had in a long time. Why are you the only one helping me with cleaning? asked Darren. Because I'm the only one who's sober, dumbass, I replied. After two hours of metalcore music-fueled closing procedures, me, Darren, Natasha, and the bouncers could finally go home. Can I crash at your place tonight? I asked. Yeah, sure, we can watch Letterkenny again, Darren responded. Natasha wanted to tag along with us, as did Pedro, our most charismatic bouncer. Jane reemerged without warning, and much to our joy, as she evidently went to the bar two blocks down for after-hours drinks as opposed to going home. For all the differences I had with my co-workers, they were all exceptionally friendly and kind. Spending the first hours of the decade with them was heartwarming, and an unexpected change of pace. Stopping at the local 7-Eleven for wine, White Claws, protein bars, and caffeine for the morning to come saw a homeless man catch my eye. I decided that the only thing to do for the beginning of this new decade was to buy this man some food. I handed him taquitos, protein bars, and a Gatorade to which he was noticeably grateful. There wasn't a half smile on this man's face, but the fully open smile of child. There was a light coming from him that brightened my night beautifully, and I pray it was never extinguished. I missed being the person who never ignored the homeless, and I missed being the person who prayed for the homeless. It is in these exchanges that life actually makes sense. It is in these moments that perspective is restored. It is in these moments that life is brighter. But perhaps the reason I noticed this light so vividly was the darkness that had descended upon the town I love. I couldn't shake it. I felt it preying upon the innocent. I felt it ready to smack those rising from poverty and depression back into suffering. I should have thought about all that was planned for this year. I should have thought about the fights I was going to take, the tournaments I was going to win, the words I'd hammer into the typewriter, and the party the town was going to be engulfed in that coming summer. It all made sense in my head, but my heart sensed something different. That was the forward and prelude chapter to the book that I am writing 
ongoing chapters of every week titled Sleepless. Now, for those of you who are listening to the forward, you'll see that there are a number of reasons I decided to write this book. But I wasn't so sure that it was necessary. And as I mentioned before, good friends of mine, after scribbling down, I want to say about 500, 600, 700 words, as I'd said, and sending it to them and asking, is this even worth reading? Um, because I think I have about 600 pages of this. And they all said, yes, yes it is, you must write it. Now, it was a really strange uh, event that happened a day after my baptism. Uh, my girlfriend, Victoria, her family, uh, her grandparents had flown in from Poland for about six weeks. And we had gotten baptized uh, a day ago at this point. And they were headed back to Poland uh, on this Saturday, July 23rd. And I had flooding to my mind all at once a bunch of events that happened from January 2020 to January of 2022. And I just saw the progression from this New Year's shift that I wrote about to me leaving California uh, February 4th of this year. And I saw that these were the events that really led to the progression of me being baptized in the church. And I found it interesting that they were all processed all at once. Because when I was going through them, everything was so fast-paced that I never really got to process anything. And a couple tears shed in my eye in seeing that God had orchestrated such a beautiful story in my life to bring me back to his church, to which I have no words of describing how grateful I am for And so I decided to write this book. And now, for those of you who have been following me a long time, know there was once something called Blood and Rain Books. Um, there was basically uh, Patreon and Gumroad, where I was releasing chapters and poetry and articles each week. And once my health took a dip, I just couldn't keep up with the volume. Um, I had started that um, in, uh, gosh, when was this? I started this in the spring of 2021, and by the time that I finished overnight security shifts in the summer, uh, I had about a month of a come down where I was just exhausted and couldn't do anything, because um, I had spent a year just completely sleep-deprived, malnourished, in poverty, as I mentioned before in the forward. And that was put on the back burner, especially when I left California and a bunch of events, you know, sort of fast forward, and now I'm sort of in this place where it's pretty clear that I have a lot to write, a lot to say. Um, and those of you who listen to episode 57 know that this is the way my content's going all through Substack. Uh, I talked about um, these chapters that are being released every single week of this book. So this coming Friday, there will be another chapter released, which I'm very excited about, chapter titled uh, The Real Thing, Chapter 1. Um, now... Why this format, though? Why not just, you know, release a book all at once? Um, this, I'm not the first person to do something like this. Um, for those of you who, 
who, uh, who have read the Foundation series by Isaac Asimov, you may be familiar with the fact that um, that series was written over the course of ten years, um, chapter by chapter, in literary magazines, particularly science fiction magazines. Now, if we take a look at the modernist era of literature, we see a pretty turbulent era of literature. Um, you know, literature in the Romantic era, the Realist era, was you know was pretty highbrow. Uh, it was always pointing upwards. It's very good. Um, it kind of reflected the belief, both in Orthodox and Catholic, and various liturgical traditions of the Protestant churches that. All art should point up to God, and this I actually agree. I don't think writing destruction for the sake of destruction uh, is ever good. But, I mean, this is something I mentioned time and time again, that the modernist era of literature had a lot of destruction, but it also bore many fruits. Um, literature became more accessible due to increases in technology. Literature was put into magazines, so more and more people be, could be reading great books. I think that aspect is something that is a massive positive of, um, of the modernist era. We did see things like this earlier in the 1880s, you know. Um, you had precursors to comic books for kids, you know. They kind of talked about in that music, the musical, The Music Man, as you start to memorize jokes from Captain Willie's Whizbang. Um... Captain Willie's was bang, you know, being a little, a little piece of a, uh, little piece of tongue-in-cheek literature for little boys at the time. You know, it was late 1800s, early 1900s. But modernism really was born in the fact that World War One just completely changed everything we thought we understood about life. War in the past was this glorious thing where one country and another country went at it, and you know, to the victor was the spoils, and whoever lost, lost some land, some gold, and some pride. But it, And people, of course, lost their lives, but it wasn't this mass devastation that left both sides completely depleted until World War One. You had things that, you had things that were bleak. Mustard gas, barbed wire, tanks, airplanes, you know, all these things that could kill you. And suddenly, war was more shell-shocked than it was glory. And that was the break in formal syntax. Um, you would have studied, you would have stories end abruptly. Now, the f I talk about this a lot, and I just recently visited um, Hemingway's birthplace, uh, Ernest Hemingway. Um, my girlfriend Victoria decided to be the best freaking girlfriend under the sun and surprised me with tickets to take a tour. Um, he was born in a house in Oak Park, a pretty well-to-do neighborhood just outside the western border of Chicago. And, you know, getting to know Hemingway again in that way was somewhat spooky. Um, I found out that Hemingway's mother was an opera singer, and my mother is also an opera singer, so that was a bit strange. Um, and I discussed with uh, some of the tour guides how I preferred a lot of his short stories to, um, to his books. Uh, to which they said a lot of these sort of academic circles uh, in literature apparently agree with that sentiment. Um, but the reason I highlighted the short stories was something that to this day really is just left sort of ingrained in my head. It was the first story I ever read by Hemingway was a short story called In Another Country, a story about some soldiers 
in an Italian military hospital in North. And this obviously hits home for Hemingway as he was in the ambulance corps on the Italian front in World War One. And I just remember the story ending so abruptly, like it hit me in the face. And I just found it so strange. Um, this is the good and the bad of modernism. When we're speaking about literature, you know, we're not going to get into reject modernity, embrace tradition on this episode of the podcast. That's for a different episode. But modernism chose to take risks, chose to change up the game a little bit. Because before, and many of you who have listened to my podcast have heard me say this, and you're going to hear me say it time and time again, especially doing the Nobel Literature Podcast, that typically stories have a beginning. So it's the intro. This is where we are. This is what's going on. We have the, the climb. So it's starting to build up and up and up and up and up and up until a climax of the story, a main big event of the story happens, a battle, um, a betrayal, um, a speech, something like that. And then you have what's called the denouement, it's the come down from that, the aftermath, and then the conclusion. That is typical formal syntax. Read any of the great romantic novels, um, The Count of Monte Cristo, although it has many, many climaxes and peaks, and uh, my good friend Thomas, Letters to the Ruins, is currently reading that book, which is making me very happy to hear, because he's finally reading the greatest book ever written, which we'll discuss in another podcast in a future date. Um, you know, Books like, gosh, what else? The Red and Black, another one like that. Huckleberry Finn, even though it was a realist, as opposed to a modernist, or as opposed to a romantic piece of literature, it also had that climb and come down. Um, anything by Dostoevsky, um, anything by D.H. Lawrence, anything by even even when it comes to plays, playwrights like Henrik Ibsen and um, Maxim Gorky and Anton Chekhov, you know all the great psychological realists, and of course Bjornsson or Bjornsson, who will be on this upcoming first episode of the Nobel Literature Podcast. They all have this structure, and then an entire generation of men from Europe from North America, and even Japan, the Middle East, um, even parts of Africa, they were hit with this this punch in the face, saying, there may not be time for all that. It may just end. Now, what is where has this gotten us in literature? Where has this gotten us in art? Everything has become a deconstruction. Everything is, is a take on something. Everything is a... How do I put this? It's a commentary. And we've sort of abandoned that original structure itself. And I don't think that modernism and that original structure itself are purely antithetical. I think you can abruptly switch things, abruptly change things. You can destroy things, but you can still keep it within some kind of structure that makes it face upward. I said a while ago, about a year ago, actually, on, my, on a story in my aesthetics page when I was locked out of my main account, that it keeps me up at night that Shakespeare only wrote tragedies and comedies, as if life can only be a failure or a joke. Yet we laud him as probably the greatest playwright of all time. Now, not to get into the idea that Shakespeare could be overrated, I wouldn't dare, 
but I did find myself gravitate towards a play that saw him break his own rules, a play called Cymbeline, where he, uh, he basically, Shakespeare rather, he ended it as in a romantic structure. It was a happy ending. Um, I would suggest you go read it. That's one of my two favorite Shakespeare plays. And I found that the most compelling, because what is it that we're striving for? Are we striving for tragedy? I think we've been psyoped a little bit into believing that that's what we need to strive for. Much of today's media certainly reflects that. We want the heroic death. We want the anti-hero. We want to sympathize with the villains. Why? It's because it's what we've been fed. If we look back, even back further, you know, we're talking about you know, cinema before it was compromised in the 1970s. We had things facing upward. We had things causing us to strive. Things calling for higher standards, higher reaches. Not for the sake of glory, but for the sake of pleasing God. This is not pride. This is not the Tower of Babel. This is realizing where we are in the hierarchy. And we want to be as close to the top of it, which is God, as possible. Our literature used to reflect this. Modernism in literature gave us a bunch of very interesting tools in which we can express chapters of our literature. Now, who's more successful than Hemingway before Hemingway was Fitzgerald? Fitzgerald was one of the mentors that Hemingway had. Um, Hemingway was pretty well established, and I'm, this is this is just information I'm repeating verbatim from the tour I went on this past Sunday. But literature in the time of the early 1920s was dominated by the earlier modernists, Gertrude Stein, F. Scott Fitzgerald, uh, and a mentor of Hemingway told Hemingway to go to Paris, where the dollar was strong, and Essentially, he could work less and write more, and he'd be amongst mentors who would help him put out his first full-length novel. Because Hemingway had uh, built a reputation for himself in the short stories, but never a full-length novel. Now, who was the main advisor in this? It was F. Scott Fitzgerald. Um, F. Scott Fitzgerald expressed beautiful, beautiful text, beautiful sentiments, roller coasters of plot, in his work, The Side of Paradise. But it ends, not to be a spoiler, in tragedy. Why was everything about tragedy? Because life had seemed to be a tragedy, but yet, these are people who were living it up in Paris in the 1920s. Doesn't seem all that tragic. So they gave us these great tools of expression you know, you see Hemingway, his idea was that he wanted to write one true sentence, just one. And that meant every single sentence needed to be as minimalist and refined as possible. It's as if you are taking a sword as a blacksmith and you are folding the steel to get it as compact and refined as possible so it has the most blunt force meaning. 
Meanwhile, you have F. Scott Fitzgerald painting these beautiful mosaics in as many words as necessary, sometimes in as many words as possible. He's painting. And it's all gone back towards what? Towards tragedy. Why? And now, m much of the literature that we've seen in the past hundred years has been hellbent on vice, tragedy, all these things that we think are so essential to the human experience, and they don't have to be. You can place these things in a context of a lesson. See, look how this man fell because of this. Look how this man fell because of that. So on and so forth. But you can still bring it back towards facing God. Name one book in this era that was written in this era that is fiction that we look to as like, wow, what an example. What, what beautiful fabric of what it means to be a man or for even for female writers of what it means to be a woman. Everything is poisoning us. Everything's too deconstructed. We're in the post- modern era heading into the post postmodern era where it looks like people have had enough you can see this in politics you can see this in culture you can see this in a rise in religion so I'd say it's high time we started writing fiction that reflects what it means to seek God and what it means to be a man literature facing upwards once again now I don't think I'm alone in attempting to do this um, some of the content creators I mentioned before particularly um, I Candidus Chase McBride and greater myth two writers on instagram who i think are two of the most talented fiction writers i have ever witnessed and i think will go down in the future as being two of the greatest fiction writers at least of this century and i don't say that lightly i know they're listening to this as well so i'm putting massive amounts of pressure on them which i'm very happy about but i have a number of books that i'm working on um I have a myth that I've been threatening to release for some time now, titled Drowning in Granite. I have a poetry book for men titled A Fury on Rival that I'm still finishing. These are very difficult to write, however. Drowning in Granite is something I need to create almost out of thin air. There's, there's certain stories, both biblical and mythological, that have had some clear influence on the writing of that text. Um, but it's still creating something from nothing, so that takes some time. A Fury and Rival, I find the best poetry comes when I live. The more I live, the more poetry comes. I'd say about mm, 21 of those poems are ready for my good friend, once again, Thomas, Letters from the Ruins, to edit. But this is easier. This is a story I lived. This is a story of how God brought me back to him. The people he put in my life all the names I mentioned before men I owe so much to um, and what I went through 
This is a story that I'm very excited to release chapters of every week because every week I can say, okay, where are we now? Okay, right. It's July of 2020 in this chapter. Okay, let's go. I hope you all enjoy it. You can find it uh, behind the paywall on Substack. My, so my subscription for Substack um, for now just has chapters of Sleepless. Um, beyond that, it will have exclusive podcasts. It will have articles about art and culture, uh, among other exclusive works. Perhaps some poetry as well. This will all be behind the paywall. You can find that on Substack.com, Blood and Rain. And I imagine it will take at least a year to complete this book. And, and in the end, when all the chapters are written, I will release it as a physical copy. So I do hope that you subscribe. I do hope that you follow along. Um, and I do hope it helps you grow closer to God. And I hope it helps you to not fall in love with your own tragedy. Good night. Good storms. God bless. Thank you.